one word this morning. I don't know if you like riddles. I kind of like them a little bit. And when I can figure them out. So uh, let me just give you a little riddle while you're finding Luke chapter 6. See if you can figure this one out. What is lethal as cyanide, angry as a hornet, pompous as a peacock, hungry as a black hole, blind as a bat, though it loves attention, it never wants to be noticed. Pride. Pride like cyanide is a poison which kills us and sinks men to hell. Pride like a hornet is full of selfish anger. Pride like a peacock puts all of its thin beauty on display for others to notice it. Pride like a black hole has an insatiable appetite to have more, be the best, to have the applause of others. Pride like a bat cannot see itself and though pride lusts for attention, it hates being noticed by others. And it's interesting when you come to the scriptures and you think to yourself, you know, I'm just going to, you know, study about John the Apostle. And you think, you know, that's what we're going to learn because, you know, I mean, John is a great guy and he was John the Evangelist. And then you begin to discover that you didn't know what you thought you knew about John. You find yourself on the operating table, strapped down. No anesthesia. God's word begins to cut into your soul and it hurts. And it takes you a while to recover. But when you do recover, you're better off than you were before. It just hurts. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis, writing about pride, said, quote, There is one vice of which no man in the world is free which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. I have heard people admit that they are bad-tempered, or that they cannot keep their heads about girls or drink, or even that they are cowards. I do not think I have ever heard anyone who was not a Christian accuse himself of this vice. And at the same time, I have very seldom met anyone who was not a Christian who showed the slightest mercy to it in others. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more conscious of in others. And the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others, end quote. Now, you may be wondering, Jack, Jack, wait a minute here. You know, this is an apostle series. You know, we're, we're, we're talking about the apostle John here. Don't, don't go to the pride area. That, that doesn't fit. Oh, yes, it does. It does. It does. And I'm sorry, but I'm going to talk about pride this morning. So feel yourself being strapped down because you're going on the table. We're in the book of Luke. We're here in chapter 6. And what's interesting is uh, we've slowed down a bit. Maybe not a bit. Maybe we've slowed down to almost a stop. Uh, We've kind of got to the place now where we've pretty much 
almost at a standstill, one word at a time, eking through Luke chapter 6. It's a time in Jesus' ministry where he's very popular and he's doing miracles and all these great things are happening. And Luke just stops momentarily to say, oh, and by the way, he took... 12 of his disciples, and he called them to be apostles, and he gives a list of the names. And so what we've been doing is we've been examining the lives of each of these men from the pages of Scripture to see what we can learn about them. And I've never done this before, and I've been surprised at what I've discovered I I have no idea. I couldn't believe that I am going to be preaching on pride from John. Because what I discovered when I was studying all the verses on John is that John was a very humble man. And of course, the opposite of humility is pride. And everybody knows that before humility comes pride. And so we really need to look at pride this morning first before we look at humility. And so when we come to Luke 6... I just want you to know we're going to be looking at John and we're going to be looking at his character. We're going to be looking at what he teaches us and then what we can apply from his character to our lives. Look at verse 12 of Luke 6. It says it was at this time. Someone needs to turn off Edward's mic. He's coughing and that's not me. John was the son of uh, Zebedee. Thanks. Thanks. I was wondering, I kept hearing this echo. I kept thinking, was I coughing? I didn't cough. I thought, man, I'm tired. Uh, John, remember, was the son of Zebedee. And uh, and this is what we learn uh, about John, that he was one. Look at verse 12. It was at that time Jesus went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer. He did that because he was going to pick the apostles. And when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also named apostles, Simon, who he also named Peter, Andrew, and uh, his brother, and James, and John. So we just stopped there. We're going to look at John. So here's John, one of the sons of Zebedee, the His brother, um, James, and uh, Zebedee and Jonas, or John, are fishing partners working uh, the fishing trade on the North Shore of the Sea of Galilee. Their sons, Andrew and Peter and James and John, worked together, and they were pretty successful from what we can tell. Um, We know that because the scriptures say that uh, Zebedee um, had hired servants. And so we know that his fishing trade was so successful, he was getting to be kind of a wealthy man. We we know that uh, from what we can tell, John's mother's name was Salome. If you compare Matthew twenty seven fifty six, John nineteen twenty five, and Mark sixteen one, and put them all together and kind of reason through, you can come to the conclusion that Salome was was John and James's mother, the wife of Zebedee, and John was a cousin of Jesus on Mary's side. That's interesting, isn't it? He was actually related to Jesus. Now, if you were to travel the art museums of the world and you were to look at all of the, you know, the the art of previous centuries uh, from, you know, the middle of the dark ages onward, it's amazing what you find. John is often pictured as this thin, pale, weak, 
effeminate, sickly, gaunt, emaciated guy. John the evangelist, you know, he can barely hold up his little Bible. And I, went, I found a website that had all these works of art just about him, and I just clicked on them, and all of them looked bad. It looked like he was, you know, suffering from the final stages of chemotherapy. But, you know, nothing could be further from the truth. John was from a family of fishermen. And fishing is no easy business. I remember when I was a commercial fisherman in Hawaii, some of the fishermen had been doing it a long time. It looked like somebody had stuffed football pads under their shoulders. These guys were buffed. There was so much arm work involved that these guys just were, they looked like they went to the gym a lot. Uh, They didn't. It's just hard lifting up ropes and pulling up fish and bending over the side of the boat and lifting things from the water into the boat. And at that time, they didn't have any hydraulic pullers or anything like that. They would lay out these huge nets. They'd get soggy. They'd sink to the bottom. They'd drag them along. They'd they'd bring them up. They'd pull out the fish. They'd haul them all in by hand and then go to another spot and do it again and do it again all night long. They'd start about midnight, fish all the way until morning. When morning would come, they'd come into shore. They'd take all their fish out, set them aside, spread out their nets, pick all the garbage out, make sure they dry, take their fish to the market sell their fish and then they would go to sleep and that's if they didn't have to do any net mending if they had to do net mending go back to sit in the hot sun mend their nets then go sleep then get up in the middle of the night and do it again and again day after day after day so it was very hard labor john was probably a big guy and we know that he was an aggressive big guy Because when Jesus first called him, according to Mark 3.17, Jesus said, come, follow me. And by the way, your nickname's going to be Son of Thunder. Hardly the name you would give to a thin, pale, effeminate, passive weakling. John was loud. He was boisterous. He was impetuous. He was muscular and hardworking. Probably didn't have much tack. We see he was kind of impetuous. See this in a few places. For instance, in Luke 9.49, John says to Jesus, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he does not follow along with us. John just took it upon himself to be the spiritual Gestapo. And he's just going to, you know, make sure that no one else is casting out demons in in Jesus' name unless they're following Jesus. Well, who appointed him? Jesus says, leave him alone. We also learned in a previous message that James and John and Luke 9, 54 were the two who asked Jesus if they could command fire to come down out of heaven and wipe out a whole Samaritan village with all the men, women, and children because they wouldn't receive Jesus. That's a little extreme. John was brazen, maybe even a little manipulative. In Matthew 20, verses 20 and 21, we see John and James sending their mother to go ask Jesus if they can have the two most important and prominent positions of power and authority and honor in the kingdom right next to him. You know, he wasn't no holy man when he started out. He was a Jew, yes, but he was, of course, prideful. 
and an unsanctified Jew. He was your average sinner like all of us. And even though John was a sinner and had a lot of problems, he was still brought up by Jesus into the innermost circle and the closest confidence of the apostles. Remember, we've learned that the apostles, all 12 of them, can be broken up into three groups. They're always mentioned in three groups in the scriptures. And the closest group got to have privileges that none of the others did. For instance, they got to see uh, Jairus' daughter raised from the dead. They got to see Jesus transformed in his kingdom glory. They were able to receive special instruction about the signs of Jesus coming and the end of the age at the Olivet Discourse. In Luke chapter 22, verse 8, John was one of two disciples who was asked to make preparations for the Passover meal. And in Mark 14, 33, it was John and James who were asked to pray and Peter who were asked to pray for Jesus and to watch while Jesus agonized in the garden right before being crucified. Of course, after Jesus' death, like Peter, John shows significant improvement. I mean, he is a different guy. According to John 20, verse 8, it was John who first believed that Jesus actually rose from the dead when he came and found his empty tomb. He just believed it. He was the first to believe According to Acts 4.13 and 5.33 and verse 40, John and Peter were the two apostles who took the most heat for being witnesses for Christ and the early church. They received the bulk of the persecution because they were the speakers. In Acts 8.14, we see John and Peter took the lead in laying hands on the Samaritans, the enemies of the Jews, so that they could receive the Holy Spirit and so that they can be welcomed into the church. According to the Apostle Paul in Galatians 2.9, John had the reputation, along with two other men, of being one of the pillars in the church. That is, he was one of the main characters seen as, you know, upholding the whole church because of his leadership and his witness and his preaching of the gospel. That is why he is often referred to as John the Evangelist. And we know he had a passion for evangelism and it carried all the way through his life because in the book of Revelation, in verse 9, when he describes himself as being a prisoner, he says he is a prisoner on the island of Patmos, exiled there because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. In other words, he would not stop preaching the gospel. Tradition says that under the persecution of Domitian, John was uh, brought before Domitian and because he would not... Stop preaching the gospel. Domitian had him thrown alive into boiling oil, which had no harm over him. And so in frustration, he had him sent to the labor mines in the island of Patmos, where he lived and died an old man. Now, what's amazing is, is when you look up all the references to John in his life, when you survey all the texts which speak of him, especially in his gospel, you discover something very interesting. John started out Boanerges, a son of of thunder, loud, boisterous, impetuous, impulsive, rash, controlling, domineering, sum it all up, prideful. But he ended his life meek, selfless, tactful, restrained, and humble. I think he would be a perfect poster child for the book that Stuart Scott wrote, From Pride to Humility. You just call it a pamphlet. 
he exemplifies a man who started out very bad and ended up very good because of the grace of God. Now, I know the topic of humility is a painful one. As a matter of fact, I decided to do a little search when I was studying this. And I thought, you know, I'm just going to get on the Internet and just and just see what Christian books are being written now about humility. Two. Two books. Sometimes there's hundreds of books in other categories, too. Almost all the writings of on humility have been written by the Puritans. And after studying this, I began to understand why. Writing or teaching about humility is humbling. It's painful. I mean, what preacher wants to stand before his congregation and be a hypocrite and say, you need to be humble, as if I'm not. As if I'm some, some knowing I'm not, knowing that I'm prideful just like anybody else. You know, there's one thing that humility never does and that say I'm humble. It never does. It never does. So when you start examining the characteristics of pride, which is the opposite of humility, you see plenty of things that fit you just fine. And when you study the characteristic of humility, it's convicting, it's daunting, it's painful, and it's somewhat depressing. But nevertheless, it's clear from the scriptures, from the word of God, that God hates pride, and there are many, many scriptures that address that, and God loves humility, and there are many scriptures that address that. And so, because I am under the command of God to teach you the whole counsel, you're going to get it this morning. So get ready to be strapped down and get ready for surgery with no anesthesia. Now, I'm just going to do two things this morning. First, I want to establish that God transformed John into a humble man. And secondly, I want to look at the opposite of humility, which is pride, because I think humility sometimes is so hard to grasp because it's so foreign to most of us that it's best to study its opposite first so that we can see what humility is. Then we will return after Easter Sunday and look at humility for a whole separate message. So let's just talk about John. John was transformed by God into a humble man. How do we know that? Well, we already mentioned he was the son of thunder. You know, he was the a little bit manipulative, sending his mom to go, you know, try and beg for power and preeminence and honor. Uh, he was a little rash, you know, trying to be the spiritual Gestapo, trying to call fire down out of heaven to consume people because they wouldn't entertain Jesus. John had these prideful tendencies. And yet, by the time we get to the end of his life, when he writes his gospel, which is about 80 to 90 AD, this means he's been walking with the Lord some, you know, 50 years. When he gets to that place in his life, he's a whole different guy. He is a whole different guy. And I want to show you why that is right now. So turn to the book of John and turn to chapter 13. John chapter 13. And we're just going to survey some texts through the book of John and just see how John's humility is portrayed. This is the scene in, this is the Lord's Supper, the upper room. 
John is describing himself here in verse 13. And he says this. No, that's not right. Oh, 23. Sorry. 1323. Um, he says this. There, wa- there was reclining on Jesus's bosom. One of the disciples whom Jesus loved. Now, John could have easily said I was reclining in Jesus's bosom. And Jesus just happens to love me. After all, I'm a neat guy. I am the disciple whom he loved, one of his favorites, one of those brought into the innermost circle. But he doesn't do that. In fact, he is so self-effacing that he writes as if he's talking about somebody else. Like he was at the other end of the table and he looked down and saw this man, this disciple, we won't give you his name, whom Jesus loved, leaning on his breast. We see the same thing in chapter 18, turn there, verse 15. Listen to how John describes this little situation. Simon Peter was following Jesus, and so was another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter was standing at the door outside. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. You know who that another disciple, that disciple, and the other disciple is? That's John. That's John. He refuses to use his name. He won't even use the first person, me or I. If you look over in John chapter 19, verse 26, you see the same thing. Jesus now is hanging on the cross... John is describing what Jesus said when he was hanging on the cross. And he says this, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom Jesus loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Now, John could have easily said, Jesus looked at his mother, then looked at me and said, woman, behold your son, John, the son of Zebedee. But he didn't do that. John sees a danger here. He sees a danger in being prideful Because he alone was selected out of the 12 to take care of Jesus' mother. That's a pretty high privilege. And if John was a proud man, he would have turned off his cell phone. (laughs) And you know, Jesus, he could have said, pick me out because I'm special. He knows I'm a godly man. He knows that he can trust me. He knows I'm responsible and kind and faithful and caring. And that's why he chose me to take care of his mother and none of you. But John doesn't even go there. Instead, he refers to himself again as the disciple whom Jesus loved, which takes the emphasis off of himself and onto Jesus. That he is just a disciple and he doesn't even mention his name that Jesus loved another unworthy sinner. In John chapter 20, verse 2, thanks for turning that off. Uh, For John chapter 20, verse 2, we see the same thing. Look at there. This is, uh, this is the, the Easter morning. Mary Magdalene runs to the empty tomb and she discovers Jesus is gone. And John writes this. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to 
the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. And if you look down in verse eight, we read on. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb, then also entered and he saw and believed. So here we learn that John is the first disciple to hear the news that Jesus is risen from the dead and the first disciple to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. But John is not interested in people knowing that he was the first guy. And so he's just the disciple whom Jesus loved and the other guy, the other disciple. John has no problem mentioning Peter's name, though. I mean, he'll he gives credit to Peter. But he won't even mention himself. He won't even use the more abstract I or me. Fearful that someone would know that he wrote this gospel and that they might think it was him. Later, it was John who first saw and recognized Christ. This is after Jesus was risen from the dead. If you turn to John 21 verse 7. Remember, Jesus told them to go to Galilee and to fish, not fish there, but wait there. But they went fishing because Peter thought, you know, hey, he's gone. He rose from the dead. It's over. Let's go fishing. And so they're out fishing all night. Of course, Jesus made sure they caught nothing. They're coming into the shore. And John 21, 7 says, therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. And so when Peter heard that it was the Lord... He put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. Now, he could have said, you know, when we were in the boat that early morning on the Sea of Galilee, I was the first one to see Jesus. I was the first one to know, notice it was Jesus, and I was the first one to tell Peter it was Jesus. But he doesn't do that. In John twenty-one nineteen, right after Jesus tells Peter he's going to be crucified, that is, Peter is going to be crucified. John says, Peter looked at the disciple whom Jesus loved and said, Lord, what about him? Peter wants to know, what about John? But John amazingly doesn't say, Peter looked at me. He just says he looked at the disciple whom Jesus loved. He refuses to mention himself by name or refer to himself in the first person because he realized how unworthy he is to even be a disciple, to even be an apostle, to even be in Jesus' presence and to walk with God Almighty for three years. He speaks as if he wasn't even there and someone else told him what happened. There was this disciple whom Jesus loved there. Some filler guy. And we know that that John was humbled, realizing he was one of the special chosen few. We can see that in the last two verses of John's gospel. In verse 24 and 25, look there. It says, John's, now John's writing this. This is the disciple who is testifying to these things. And wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. Now let me just ask you. I mean, what if you 
were chosen to follow Jesus? What if you were asked to be an apostle? What if you spent three years walking around with Jesus, with God incarnate, seeing miracles, seeing him teach, seeing him raise people from the dead, seeing him do so many things that the world and all of its book could not contain them, to see all of that, and then somebody says, I want you to write 21 chapters about Jesus and you never mention your name. You never say I. You never say me. You just refer to yourself as the disciple who Jesus loved or another disciple or that guy. People, that is humility. That is some serious humility. If it was up to us, we'd probably say something like, I, John, was there to witness all these things. I, I saw all the miracles. I heard Christ's teaching. I hugged God incarnate. And I was loved extra special by Jesus. I leaned in his breast. And you know what? I even ate food that he spoke ex nihilo out of nothing. I saw it all. I was there. I was in that innermost circle. Amen. (laughs) And you know what? All of that would be true. That's all true. All of those things are true. He was there. He did see all that. He did experience all that. He hugged God incarnate. He did. All of it. It's true. All of it. He doesn't give himself any credit. Even in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, John never refers to himself by name or even alludes to himself as an apostle. Instead, in 2nd John 1 and 3rd John 1, he refers to himself as the elder. A generic term. Yeah, your average common church leader. On the same par with every other church leader, the elder. He could have done what Paul did in each of those letters. I, John, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God in Christ, you know, launch off. Nothing like that. First, first John doesn't even mention his name. The other ones, he's just the elder. John does use his name in the book of Revelation, though. Chapter 1, verse 1. Except when he does it, Twice he refers to himself as the bond servant in that one verse. In other words, I, John, the lowest person in society, the dregs of society, the lowest man in the totem pole, the slave, the servant, the one with no respect that deserves no respect, who only deserves to be told what to do. I, John, that guy, right Later in Revelation 1.9, he refers to himself as your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation in the kingdom. Just one of the brethren. Just one of the sufferers, fellow sufferers for Christ. You know, he's not sitting on a marble throne. Wielding his apostolic authority. Gilded in white robe. Threaded with gold with a pointy conspicuous hat on. But finally, finally, and this is amazing, 
At the very end of the book of Revelation, in chapter 22, verses 8 and 9, he finally refers to himself specifically. And you know what he gives himself credit for? Committing blasphemy and idolatry. Because he fell down and he worshipped at the feet of the angel. He says, I, John, committed blasphemy and idolatry. I fell down at the feet of this angel and I worshipped the angel. And the angel had to rebuke me and say, obey God and worship him only. And that is the only time he mentions himself specifically and directly in all of his writings. Amazing. He was a humble guy. He was a humble guy. And again, he could have... He could have finished up the book of Revelation with some serious boasting. I, John, the favored apostle, beloved by the Lord, the apostle allowed to live longer than any of the other apostles, the one whom Jesus had trusted his mother to, the one of the select most privileged few who saw the most incredible things, the one who wrote five inspired books and the last book of the Bible. Amen. But nothing like that. He was humble. He was selfless, self-effacing. He was a man who realized he was an unworthy sinner. And by the time he got to the end of his life, he does everything he can to make sure there's no attention on him. Even though he, out of all the men who have ever lived, got to experience the greatest things any man has ever been able to experience. And he gives himself Zero credit except blasphemy and idolatry. And humility is the great character quality that I discovered when studying John. And it's the character character quality that all of us need to have. We all need to learn how to be humble. And even if some of us have some humility, we don't have near as much as we could have or should have. And so let's investigate humility by first looking at its opposite, evil twin, pride. So here's our first point. Our next point will be two weeks from now. There are many words in the Bible that describe pride. You can look up, you know, conceit and scoffer and haughtiness and vainglory and, you know, presumption and selfishness. And of course, pride and prideful. There's all of these synonyms. There's zillions of them. You just look and there's just tons and tons. And what's interesting is, is you begin to realize that pride is kind of the, the engine that drives all sin. I mean, it's the fuel for all of our sin. Andrew Murray in his little soul searching book, humility. It's a book that Justin gave me. I wonder why. Um, It took me about six months to read it. I mean, you know, if you just read through it in one fell swoop, it, you know, it's probably an hour read, maybe a little bit more. It's pretty small, but man, it's painful. It's one of those you can only endure a couple pages a day book. And Murray says this, quote, Evil can have no beginning but from pride and no end but from humility. The truth is pride must die in you or nothing of heaven can live in you, end quote. When we sin, we set aside God and we tell, we tell God this. Listen, listen, I know better than you, God. I know what I need, God. I know you're telling me not to do this, but listen, you don't know what I need. 
You don't know how to make me happy. I know how to make me happy. I know what's good for me. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to reject you because I know better. And that's pride. And that's what's behind every one of our sins. Jay Packer in his book, Knowing God, says pride is the taproot of our fallen nature. And everybody knows when you got a taproot, you have to do what? You got to dig it out. So we're going to dig it out. Pride says Bud Robinson is the only disease known to man that makes everyone sick except the one who has it. (laughs) Benjamin Whitcott said, none are so empty as those who are full of themselves. Milton Berle, the great (laughs) non-theologian, said an egoist is a man who talks about himself so much that you don't have a chance to talk about yourself. Oswald Sanders in his book, Spiritual Leadership, says, Pride is a sin of whose presence its victim is least conscious. But you know, the real important thing is, what does God say about pride? Turn to the book of Proverbs. We'll just take some beatings here from Proverbs to begin with. And then we'll get into our 30 lashes. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16 and the first part of 17. Here it is. There are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven, which are an abomination to him. And the first thing mentioned in verse 17 is, top of the list, haughty eyes. A synonym for pride. Look at Proverbs 8.13. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride, and arrogance, and the evil way, and the perverted mouth. I hate. That's pretty strong language. Turn over to Proverbs chapter 16, verse 5. Here's a scary one. Everyone... Who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not go unpunished. Everyone. Look over at Proverbs 26, 12. Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope. For a fool and for him. And if you look at the scriptures that talk about fools, that's a scary statement. And people who think they're wise in their own eyes are prideful. Isaiah 2.12 says the Lord is against the proud. Twice in the New Testament in James 4.6 and 1 Peter 5.5, we are told that God is opposed to the proud. He's actually working against them. You don't want that to happen. (laughs) God is really big. He's really powerful and you don't want him working against you because he always wins. You play tug of war with God, you lose. And that's just a small sample. When you look at, you can get it, you know, topical indexes. There are, there are hundreds, maybe even thousands of verses on pride and its synonyms. And then when you include all the other verses or all the other words that you might look up that relate to pride, they're they're legion. 
But hopefully that little group of verses was enough to get you to realize God hates pride big time. Stuart Scott in his book from pride to humility defines pride with these words, quote, when someone is proud, they are focused on self. This is a form of self-worship. A person is prideful who believes they in and of themselves are or should be the source of what is good, right and worthy of praise. They also believe that they by themselves are or should be the accomplisher of anything that is worthwhile to be accomplished. And that they should certainly be the benefactor of all things. In essence, they are believing that all things should be from them, through them, and to them, and for them. Pride is competitive towards others and especially towards God. Pride wants to be on top, end quote. Thomas Watson in his work, A Body of Divinity, says... You that do set up your shield and blaze your coat of arms, behold your pedigree. You are but walking ashes. And will you be proud? What is Adam, the son of dust? And what is dust, the son of nothing? I mean, we need to remember, we're just walking dust. You were formed out of dust and to dust you will return. That's not anything to boast about. You're just dirt clods, walking dirt clods. Now, if I were to ask you this, do you see yourself as a proud person? If I were to ask you, let's just say we did a little scale from one to ten, one being, you know, Mr. Humble, and then ten, you know, Nebuchadnezzar in his prideful rage. Where, where do you fit? You know, how would you grade yourself? You, you don't have to say it out loud. Somebody might hear you. But think about it in your mind. You know, kind of put yourself on the scale there. I am a two. No, that's, that's way too good. Three. No, maybe you ought to be safe and put a five. That's kind of average. But maybe you're a little worse than five. Maybe you're a six or a seven. Maybe you're a nine. Where would you put yourself? Well, let me just give you a little quiz from Stuart Scott's book, which we might affectionately call The 30 Lashes. And as I read these manifestations of pride, then you can ask yourself, is that me? And then you can adjust your score. Here you go. You complain or pass judgment on God. You accuse God of not doing what's right. Anxiety is a form of that. You aren't giving me what I deserve, Lord. Situations aren't good. Your grace isn't sufficient. Secondly, you have an ungrateful spirit. You, you, you go days, sometimes weeks, never being really thankful, never really thanking God in prayer because you're not grateful. You're, you, all you see is the bad and you don't see all of his blessings in your life. You're an angry person. Under the surface, there's anger, there's rage. Somebody cuts you off, out it comes. Somebody says something you don't like, out it comes. You see something you don't like, out it comes. You see yourself as better than others. I'm glad God hasn't made me like so-and-so. You know, they're okay, but they're not as good at doing what I do. 
You have an inflated view of your importance, your gifts, your abilities. You think you're something special. Like the flea. Did you notice how we shook that bridge? Said the flea riding on the back of the elephant after crossing an old bridge. You just take credit for anything you can. Oh, yeah, I did that. You degrade yourself and boast of your inabilities, your lack of gifts and abilities. Some people think that being humble is saying, oh, woe is me. I am a worm. God could never use me. You know, I cannot, you know, oh, you know, you have great gifts and I do not. Well, that's not what the scriptures say. It's a form of reverse pride. It's boasting against what the scriptures say you are. Seven, you suffer from perfectionism. Ouch. I knew a guy like that. The disciple whom Jesus loved. You talk too much. You talk too much about yourself. You are always fighting for independence or control. I mean, it doesn't matter how things go as long as you have things your way. Like Burger King. You want things your way. And if you don't get them your way, then you revert back to one of the other things. You become the angry person. Or you are consumed with what others think about you. You live your life to make sure other people notice you. Not God, you. Thomas Watson, in his work, The Godly Man's Picture, says, Many dress themselves in such fashions as to make the devil fall in love with them. Make up gaudy attire, naked breasts. What are these but the flags and banners which pride displays? Here's another one. You get mad or are devastated when others criticize you. You get mad. Who are you to be criticizing me? You're unteachable. Nobody can teach you anything. You know everything. You're sarcastic. You're hurtful. You're degrading of other people. You like to chop other people down. You like to, you know, pick on them because it makes you feel good inside. You don't like to serve others. You like others to serve you. There are just some things you can't do. Let someone else do that. That's below me. You don't have compassion on others. No, they're getting what they deserved. The reason they're hurting is they deserve that. You are defensive. And you like to blame shift. Whenever it becomes apparent that you've blown it, it's somebody else's fault. Well, I couldn't help it because they, it was that woman you gave me. It was the wife. It was the child. It was my situation of the flat tire. No, we're not done yet. We're on the 18th lash. You have a hard time or never admit you're wrong. It's just, you just can't bring yourself to do it because you're not all that wrong. I mean, other people are wrong too. And I mean, why should you have to say you're wrong? You rarely, if ever, ask people for forgiveness. You just can't do it. I mean, everybody's a sinner. Why do I need to do that? You don't pray very much because you don't need God's help. You can do it yourself. 
You resist authority and are disrespectful of authority and you don't like authority because you don't like people telling you what to do. And so you're going to do your own thing. You're going to go your own way. You're going to get out and impulsively flight out and have control of your life so that other people can't control you. If you break the law and you get a ticket, you're mad at them because you did what was wrong and got caught and you don't like their authority over you. You don't like your boss telling you what to do. You speak up and give your opinion when you're not asked. You minimize your own sin and shortcoming, but you maximize others' sins and shortcomings. You are impatient and irritable with others. You are jealous and envious of others. You use others to get what you want. You practice deceit by covering up your sins, faults, and mistakes. You use attention-getting tactics to try and get accolades from other people. And you don't have any close relationships because you don't want anybody to find out what you're like. You don't want anybody to talk about you and your faults. You want to maintain control, so you isolate yourself. Now, how you doing? Anybody pass that one? Anybody get 30 no's? That is a pretty scary list. It was scary typing it out. It was scary reading it the first service. And it's painful reading it again. We are like Watson says, proud dust, sons of nothing. We think we're so great and so special That when we do things, we try and get glory for it for ourselves. It's not God. It's not what God has given us. It's not God's grace. It's not God creating in this way. It's not God's providence. It's us and our abilities and whatever. And we're blind and we're stealing glory from God. And we, a lot of times, don't even realize it. But we see it in other people. We're like the flea in the back of the elephant. But we won't admit it. That the elephant shook the bridge and not us. So what are we going to do about this? Well, since we all have the taproot of pride in our soul, how do we recover? How do we dig this out? Here we go. First thing, admit you're proud. That's the beginning of the cure. You know, people never get over problems until they first realize they've got one. Sometimes people come to me and they say, hey, could you go call up so-and-so and fix them? You contact, you know, my brother or my sister or my mother or my friend at work. Just call them up and fix them. I said, no. And some people kind of get offended. Well, why not? Aren't you a minister? Guess what? You're a minister too. But you know what? Until somebody wants fixed, they don't get fixed. Until someone admits they have a problem and they humble themselves enough to go seek help, They never receive counsel. They don't want to receive counsel. They don't think they're broken. They're blinded. They're prideful. So the first thing you need to do in order to get over your pride is to admit, hey, I'm proud dust. You know, I'm proud. I steal glory from God. I try to get attention to myself. I got people look at me. You know, just any of those things. Get from pride to humility and, you know, read it again and hurt yourself again in case, you know, you forget and you start thinking you're pretty good. 
And so you have to admit that you have a prideful heart and that you need to recover from the disease. Second thing, you need to repent and confess your prideful heart to God. You need to boldly approach the throne of grace because you need help because you're in a time of need and you need to just dump on God. You know what I mean by dump on God? It's when you go to God and you just say, Lord, I am a sinner. I need you. I am prideful. You know, after realizing this, I realize I'm angry. I realize I'm controlling. I realize I'm inflexible. I realize I'm impatient. I realize I seek for attention. I think I, I, I'm the only one who can do it. I'm unteachable. I mean, whatever it is, just all over him. And just say, man, I need help. And I know all of this is wrong. And I want to turn from all of this. And I need you to help me do that. And I want you to teach me to be humble through the wisdom of your word. And then if you're really brave, you can pray this. But if I won't learn it that way, then use circumstances. That is a painful one. If I won't learn from wisdom, then use circumstances. If you're tough enough, you can pray that one. Third, go for the scriptures that speak to the issue of pride and haughtiness and scoffing and insolence and arrogance and all of those things. Find some of those ones that just really stab you through it and memorize them so that whenever the the monster of pride rises up in your heart and your soul, those scriptures will be there to beat it back down. Hide God's word in your heart so that you will not sin against them, against him. Get into the scriptures. Be saturated in the scriptures. Keep reminding yourself of what is right. Be warned. And then fourth, which we are going to go for next time we come back after Easter. Strive for humility. It's not enough to just say no to pride. You have to say no to pride and yes to humility. You have to put off pride and you have to put on humility. You have to flee from pride and you have to pursue humility. And if you're thinking, well, Jack, how do I know? I mean, you know, well, I'm not going to preach the whole sermon to you, but here is something that will really help you. Whatever comes natural to you, whatever comes normal to you, usually take that and do the exact opposite. <laughs> you know, when you're looking for a little attention... Think to yourself, okay, the exact opposite of me getting attention is God and someone else getting attention. That's the humble thing to do. Whenever you think that, you know, you start getting angry because other people are telling you what to do, then think to yourself, the opposite of that would be to not be angry and to submit to other people who are telling me what to do. And you just go through whatever your area of pride is, all your worst ones, just, just take them and do the exact opposite. And you'll be heading in the right direction because if pride's this way, humility's that way, right behind you. Whatever way you're facing to go forward in pride, you have to turn around and go the exact opposite way. And it will require you to think a little bit. Somebody came up to me after the service and said, oh, good sermon. And then I'm sitting there. Thanks. I was going to tell him, I forget what famous preacher it was. It was Barnhouse or Moody or somebody, maybe Spurgeon, I don't know. But somebody came up to him after a sermon and said, good sermon. And he said, yeah, I know. Satan already told me. 
So that's the plan of attack. I think the oldest hymn in our hymnal was written about 1200 AD by St. Francis of Assisi. The name of the hymn is All Creatures of Our God and King. And the last line reads this. I'll just close with this. Let all things their creator bless and worship him in humbleness. Oh, praise him. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word takes us to the woodshed and puts us on the table and operates on our sin sick soul. We, we definitely need it. And Father, I just want to pray this morning that Calvary Bible Church would be a, a church that is characterized by humility and Christ-likeness, giving glory to you and lifting up others, not seeking self, not trying to control. And Father, I just pray that it would all start with the leadership with my own life and the rest of the leaders, that we would learn to be humble and, and faithful servants who are meek and lowly and not um, aggressive and loud and boisterous like John was at the beginning of his life. And Father, I also pray for everybody else here who has been convicted by your word and who sees that pride is a grievous sin and that humility is the thing to be desired. And Father, I pray that you would help all of us to confess that we have a problem, confess to you that that we are prideful, and Father, that we would want everything that we can get from you to help overcome that, that we would saturate ourselves in your truth, that we would memorize key scriptures, that we would flee from pride and pursue humility. And Father, if there's anybody here this morning who in their heart has never really repented of their sins, never really bowed the knee to you, because... They might want you as savior, but they don't want you as king. I pray that you would help them right now realize that they are in a terrifying place. And Father, that you would help them realize that if they won't have you as their king, you won't be their savior. And so, Father, I just pray that If there is anybody here who has never bowed their whole life to you, repented of their sins and humbly placed themselves before the feet of your sons, willing to do anything he asked them to do, I pray that they would do this now. For the rest of us, may these truths pierce our heart until we can return again and Father change us and make us more like Jesus because we surely need it. Amen. If you need... uh, somebody to pray with you we have counselors over here we'd love to minister to you we also have a great visitor center out there if you are visiting with us we would ask you to go out there and find some friendly people who would give you some great information and answer any questions you have and uh, for the rest of you we have a great evening service coming up tonight hope to see you there you are dismissed